let me start off and a little bit about the battleground. Uh, we've been doing the battleground. I've been doing it with Salinda Lake since 1991, June of 1991. So we've been doing it a very, very, very long time. Um, I think the thing that people find unique about it is that we had actually made a decision when we were going to do it. Um, that we were seeing the, the, the use of public polling increase out there. And we thought we want to let people see how political pollsters actually use the data. Um, and so one of the key things we decided was that we would do a separate Republican and Republican Democrat strategic analysis because there's always good news and bad news for everyone in every poll. And so she does a very good job of bringing out the bad news for Republicans and the good news for Democrats. And until recently, I was very good at bringing out the good news for Republicans and the bad news uh, for the Democrats. Um, uh, and it works well. We released this battleground poll. Actually, we tried something new. Uh, we actually flew up to Ohio last week and released this battleground poll four hours before the Democratic debate in the same facility. And it really got a lot of press. It's become very lazy. Um, so it used to be we would release a battleground poll and we get a room of 150 press people. Now they all call and say, well, I kind of have your analysis and talk to you about it afterwards. They're not going to get up at 8 o'clock in the morning and come to a, a polling briefing. Um, but uh, we, we did move from 10 years. We did it by ourselves for many years. Then we, we uh, GW, Georgetown University, uh, George Washington University, sponsored the poll for a while. And then we decided we wanted to go a different direction. We're now doing it with, with Georgetown, where we pay for the poll. And they're kind of involved with us more from the standpoint of we're now doing a poll with a separate section, which is a section on civility and politics. I had done a fellowship at Georgetown last fall on that issue and decided we were going to start adding that to the battleground and tracking where we are in, on, in civility in this country in terms of politics. And I feel very, very strongly um, that our country is in a death spiral of civility in this country. Um, I also, not to make it sound like I blame Donald Trump for that, I believe also very strongly that if this country hadn't gone down to a level that Trump would be acceptable, um, uh, he wouldn't have been acceptable. So we kind of got there first before Trump got there. Um, and I think that is a real danger. I see him as a symptom, not the disease. And it's something I always try to clarify when I'm, I'm talking about civility. Now, let me jump in on the poll, and I'm going to give you some pluses and minuses, but I, I, I want you to kind of, um, I'm going to save much of this for questions at the end, because that's where the best stuff comes out. Uh, first of all, let me mention the first big surprise we saw in the battleground poll. Um, uh, so, and something, and I'll go back a little bit to 2018, something that was kind of a misread of what happened in the 2018 campaign. Um, Normally, and this is one of the things we always kind of laugh with each other about, Selinda and I, about the public polls, is because the public polls started about 2012, starting to pull samples based on who they thought the electorate would be, as opposed to pulling samples, you know, we 
Anyone that says they're definitely not voting, we, we take them out of the equation when we're doing the interview. Uh, but that's only about 6% of the people. Um, and then we interview everybody else. And what we have developed over the years that, you know, quite frankly, we use in every one of our campaigns is a model that we look at intensity to vote, intensity for the candidates, age and education, the two key determinants on turnout uh, in an election. And so everyone we interview has a score. And so I then go to my IT guy and say, okay, I want to look at 100% of the data, which is really representing about 93% of the voters out there. Um, and then in the data, he breaks out the 60, 50, 60, 70, 80% that are most likely to vote. And I'm looking at all those models. Because what you want to know is not what's the turnout going to be. You want to see where does the data break according to different levels. Is a high turnout a much different response on the ballot than a medium turnout than a low turnout? And we use that every one of our campaigns. And quite frankly, um, we're kind of proud of the fact that if you look at our last polls in our campaigns that we're doing, we're usually within a percentage point of the actual results of the campaign. So we, we have a lot of confidence in terms of looking at it that way. And also understand that campaigns can break very, very late in the campaign. What was unusual about 2018 is that for three decades now, we have had in non-presidential years, 40% of eligible voters have voted. And in a presidential year, 60% have voted. That was true all the way through 2014, on the off years in 2016, um, in the presidential year. Um, and so these that are looking at a sample that is off are looking at, you know, they always talk about polling like it's 100% of the voters um, are going to be participating in the election. That's not what we do in campaigns. We want to make sure our people, we want 50% to be supporting us, and then a bigger majority of those to turn out than our opponents in the campaign. In 2018, turnout was 50%. It wasn't presidential level, the way much of the press described. But it was halfway between presidential level and traditionally what was off here. Where they also got it wrong is it wasn't coming from the suburbs. Look, the bottom line with us in the suburbs is that the Democrats, all they had to have with what was happening with the white female vote in terms of moving away from the Republican Party, all they had to have in the suburbs was enough districts that if they ran the table, they were going to win control of Congress. And that's exactly what they had, is enough districts. Now, it also took us being kind of foolish on districts like the Oklahoma City District in, in, in Oklahoma 5 or the Fresno District that we had candidates, those two candidates both ended up with over $400,000 in the bank because they didn't think they had a contest. And it's like, okay, who are you listening to? Were you listening to the promotion of the House leadership that we were going to keep control? But you can't tell me you didn't hear that we had a real problem in this upcoming election, specifically in the suburbs. Now, I believe part of the problem, quite frankly, and it's where I say the Democrats will have some problem in the future, is that part of the problem in many of those districts 
is that they were conservative but moderate conservative, if, if you will, Republicans, not crazy conservative like much of the Tea Party was. That began in 2012, 2014, and, and 2016 moving to the right because they were concerned about a primary and the Tea Party as opposed to being concerned about winning that district. And so part of 2018 was coming to home, coming home to roost on the fact that they had moved too far right when originally they had matched those districts and represent those districts very well. And it's one of the things that I think as we go into the future, as we get, um, I probably won't be here in those days, but when we get um, control of many of those districts, we as a party have to promote uh, uh, different approaches to conservatism as opposed to a lockstep where you're going. I also see the Democrats doing exactly the same thing with the progressives that the progressives figured out in 2018 or 2016, 2018, that there were a few very solid Democrat districts that progressives could win. And it's easier to win a solid Democrat district in a primary than go out and beat a Republican in a marginal district in terms of the future. And so I think you're seeing already in some of the candidates and the challengers that are coming forward, they're going way too far to the left. In fact, probably the best example of that is one of the presidential candidates today, which is Warren, who went way too far to the left on Medicare for all, and now she's trying to figure out how do I scurry back more to the center on how you pay for it, and will it be a tax increase? Um, it may, be, may end up being, at the end of the day, a classic mistake she made in the campaign. So looking at this battleground data, the first thing we saw that was a surprise is that usually in a presidential year, the, and, and quite frankly, the off years, the intensity of the out party is always higher than the intensity of the in party. That those that are on the outside are more intense about getting back control than those that are on the inside are on being proud of everything they're doing and defending everything they're doing. And it's just a nuance in the polling. It's something that we always look at very closely. It's, it's why you see off-year elections go against the incumbent party. Um, sometimes only in one, the first one, but very often in both of the off-year elections if it's the mid-year term. But one of the first things we saw in the battleground is we had the highest <laughs> intensity for this period of time in any election cycle we've ever looked at. Those, the group of voters saying that they were extremely <laughs> likely to vote in this next election was at 82% usually it hovers in the high 60s to low 70s about this period of time and grows to about 75% by the election. So we're already way past there, way past there. The other thing that was a surprise, and there were two other pieces to this, is number one, Republicans are more intense than Democrats at this point. More intense by two percentage points, 84% to 82% for the Democrats, but independents, which are really way down on, the, on the, the turnout, especially at this point in the campaign, are at 79%. So they're right up there with Republicans and Democrats. Um, 
that's going to mean that it's going to be much, much more difficult to predict movement and analyze movement because they're all already up there. Now, what we may see is at some point the independents fall back, or at some point Republicans, something happens with the president that they get kind of embarrassed by and they pull back on their intensity. But at least that is what is there right now. Now, the flip side of that is that um, everyone always, when you're at this point of, of uh, an administration, all the public polls, they make two main mistakes. One is that the only thing that they look at is the uh, presidential job approval, and not the presidential image, the likability, the favorable, unfavorable. Um, and I think we saw in 2016 that measurement was extremely important to track. And it was something that we were able to kind of see a little bit more of the dynamics of what was happening in the campaign. The other thing the public polls don't do is they never ask intensity on the question. So you're never getting a feel for, well, is it 75% feel strongly about that, or only 50%, or only 25%? They can't get any kind of measurement on where those issues are going on who are the most intense about those positions. And a good example is um, Trump, and, and we've seen this now uh, for the entire three years that he's been in office, is that, first of all, the big thing that we saw in 2016 is that a presidential nominee for either party that never before in an election did the nominee for either party have over a 50% unfavorable rating. Trump, the day he announced for president, had a 55% unfavorable rating. The day he was elected, had a 55% unfavorable rating. The day he was sworn in, had a 55% unfavorable rating. And through the entire three years we've been tracking, he has had a 54.5 to, in this survey, we had him at 56% unfavorable. But what was also different in 2016, is both candidates were over 50% unfavorable. And not only were both candidates over 50% unfavorable, both candidates were over 50% strongly unfavorable. <laughs> I mean, usually what you have in a presidential year is about 70% of the electorate, the more partisans, that are favorable towards one candidate, unfavorable towards the other and usually fairly evenly split Democrat and Republican, about 35%. In 2016, 37% were favorable towards Hillary, and 33% were favorable towards Trump. So again, almost that even split. Then what you have is usually about 2 or 3% um, who dislike both candidates. They're your cynics. Usually, they end up not voting in the election. And by the way, one of the things I've become to believe stronger and stronger and stronger through the years is as much as we talk about cynical voters, and the press loves cynical voters, I've never understood why they love writing the articles about distrust of the federal government, when in fact, that's what our country was based on, was the principle of never trust the federal government. That was a good thing, not a bad thing. 
but they love to promote that as a key story and have really stirred that pot over the years. Um, but usually it's about 2 or 3% and they end up not voting. In 2016, 24% dislike both candidates. And the 20 to 24% that usually likes one and not the other, or likes them both, and then they are your swing vote in the campaign, they never vote 3% the entire campaign the number of voters that like both candidates. And that's with an error factor of 3%. So could have been zero. And I wouldn't have doubted if it was zero, um, liking both candidates. Um, so the swing vote in 2016 was the voters that disliked both. And in fact, what happened in that campaign was it got down to 19% on the exit polling, voted on election day. They broke in the last week towards Trump. I always felt that whoever got the focus of the negative blast was going to lose. And anyone that thinks the FBI report uh, didn't have an impact on that, along with the fact, quite frankly, that Trump thought he was going to lose. So he stopped tweeting. He stopped saying crazy things in the rallies that got covered in the press that night. And so he got quiet at just the right time for the focus to go to Hillary. To, to go to Hillary. The other thing that helped him, quite frankly, was the fact that in the key states he had to win to get the Electoral College, Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, uh, North Carolina, all of, those, all of those states had a sender running for re-election that put together a real ground game because the Trump campaign was not to capitalize on the turnout that was there. So looking at that becomes very important, and looking at the fact kind of predicts what has to happen in the next election, the fact that Trump, um, Trump has to run a campaign. His, his unfavorables are not going to drop below 50%. So that means he has to run a campaign that whoever the nominee running against him is, he has to drive their negative over 50%. And he has to somehow, which is very hard to, probably the harder part of this, this, is that he has to manipulate the campaign or put together, put together the campaign, not that there's a constant flow of negative against the opponent, but the focus of the negative becomes the opponent last. Because that was a key component in swinging that group of, what was the swing voters? dislike both candidates in his favor and against Hillary. Now, there was also another thing on Hillary mentioned about Trump as a positive, is he does have an understanding that that Trump base, not the Republican base, but the 32, 33% that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they would still stand up and applaud everything he did, that he has to keep their intensity high because where he was at a 33% favorable rating, 30% strongly approved of him. And Hillary was at 37%, but only 17% strongly approved of her. So that had an impact on turnout when the story turned negative. So what the Democrats have to be saying is not only do we have to, you know, we have to contend with that he's going to drive our negatives up, we have to make sure that our positives are strongly approved. So that throws us into a variety of things that we normally look at. Um, I will say this about the job approval. 
Um, Trump's job approval, and I've talked to you about this before, Trump has this 32-33% base. Then he has another 12%, mainly Republicans, that dislike his style and character, but like his policies. And they choose to put a premium on the policies as their decision for what's there. Now, part of what has happened with that group since the election is that really two things. Um, one is the tax bill going through had a huge impact with locking those Republicans in. Locking those Republicans in. That's why his job approval now is combining that 32-33 with that 12%, and he's hovering in the mid to low 40s on his job approval. Um, the other thing is that the Democrats have been acting just as civil, uh, uncivil, in terms of the environment out there. And so the Republicans look at it, they like his policies, and they say, he may be an ass, but he's our ass, um, in terms of the way he's acting. And, and, and so they have locked in. That is the good news for Trump. The bad news for Trump is there's another 12, 11, 12% that like his policies, but don't like his character and put a priority on the character. And they tend to be suburban, white, married women who used to consider themselves to be Republican. And they are independents, and they are conservative Democrats. And that is a group that, um, if you ask specific questions, like job approval of Trump on taxes, or on the economy, or on jobs, he goes over 50% in his approval, because he's combining all three, three groups together, and they're not, in the way you ask the question, taking into consideration um, the character part of the equation, uh, his persona. Um, that should be a message to the Trump people that okay, the way to run this campaign is to drive home a record of economic accomplishment and drive home on a daily basis those issues that a larger group of people agree with you on the issues. And in fact, today, if you look at Trump on the economy, his job approval is 57.41. On uh, jobs, it's 56.40. By the way, up until Trump, if you asked an economic question, the Democrats always, uh, I mean, if you asked an economics question, the, the Republicans always did well, but if you asked about jobs, the Democrats always did well. We, we've, for 30 years, we've been dealing with how do we get our guys to talk jobs, 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 and not just economic consequences. On taxes, um, his job approval is actually upside down um, by 49, 49% disapproved, 40 uh, 46% approve. Um, I'm sorry, 47, 49. So it's upside down by two points. My concern on that and in, in, in dealing with my candidates is, number one, anyone that tracked the process, the tax bill that went through was more, Ralph and I worked on this a lot, the tax bill was more the speaker's bill than Trump's bill. Trump sold it, but he wasn't the driving force of a lot of what, what was in it. 
And one of the key things that was in this tax bill, I don't know, I may say something you don't agree with, but I was very excited that we finally did something as Republicans to make it not only beneficial to big business, but to make it beneficial to small business. And quite frankly, so many of our broader group of voters in the Republican Party are not owners of big business, their owners are employees of small business across the country. And that's what we should be selling on the tax bill, is what we did for middle class small business in this country, not allow the Democrats to define it as we came in again and gave everything to big business, which Warren and others are trying to do. And I think this is a sign that the president is not quite getting there on selling the message of middle class tax cuts and small business. A um, couple of areas that, um, you know, if you look at him with immigration, his job approval is 43 to 55, um, upside down, unfavorable. Healthcare, 39 to 57. Um, education, um, he is upside down, 42 56. One of the big concerns, foreign affairs which is always a strength, national defense and foreign affairs, always a strength for us. Uh, he is upside down by 42.56, disapproving. We were in the field two weeks ago, so everything that's happened in the last week with the Kurds, I'm sure, is only going to drive those numbers down deeper. Um, so that's when you look at... Um, <laughs> That's when you look at his job approval on the issues. I'm going to come back in a second on where the parties are. We then, we've been segmenting, and the reason why I know about these different groups and how they are. We have a question we ask that we place voters in one of three positions. That you think what Trump says and does and how he does it um, is insulting and wrong. 52% of the country now believes that. 52% insulting and wrong. It's the first time we've actually inched up over 50%. Usually it's down in the, in the high 40s. Um, bothers me, but he speaks out on important issues. 17% of the country. Um, that is about three or four points lower than what it was. So you've seen kind of says what's right, um, even though they don't like the way he feels, has actually shrunk and moved to they just think he's wrong all the time. They don't like it the way he acts. Has the right approach and talks about the right things, um, 29%. So that 32, 33% has shrunk a little bit in terms of the Trump base. But we then use that to, uh, to kind of then start segmenting the voters and looking at different things. Now, let me mention two different groups that I think we have to watch very, very closely. One is uh, white married women. Um, I've always disagreed um, uh, with Linda Lake, Linda Duvall, who I think did all your polling, Jim, that they always focus on the gender gap. And I've never kind of understood why do you talk about women when, like, they're a monolithic group? When in fact, if I did that, you'd call me a chauvinist. 
But why do you, in all your analysis, talk about the gender gap, women versus men, women versus men, when we know that women are not a monolithic group? And in fact, what I've always seen in terms of the gender gap is it is much more a racial gap and a married gap than it is a gender gap. I mean, if you are an African-American woman, I mean, we, we'd have to pay people in our surveys to say they're for Trump. <laughs> because they're certainly not going to say that they are. Sorry, I need to But we also see the same thing with married versus single women. And so in most campaigns, most winning campaigns, we're winning white married women by about 20 points. We're winning um, white women by about seven or eight points because white married women are such a large part of that, they more than offset white single women in how they're voting. <clears throat> Today we are down on the generic ballot with white women by eight points. It's the worst I've ever seen in 30 years of looking at polling and another 10 years before that, 15 years before that of looking at politics. Um, it makes the Reagan years look like hiker years in terms of that gender gap with those women. And white women overall were down by 12 points. So we really have a lot that we have to do. The unfortunate thing on that is, again, going back to the point, if Trump would talk about the economy, the economy, and the economy, those two women on both jobs and on the environment, on, uh, jobs and on um, economics, are at 57 and 63% approve of the president on those two measurements. He needs to be talking to them about their family, about their jobs, about the economy, and keeping the economy strong. That is the message to them more than any other group out there. Well, there's one other group. The other surprise we saw in the data, and, and I just got a kick out of this, is that we, we, we divide economically the voters into high income, middle income, working class, and lower income. Lower income tends to be, or upper income tends to be at 8% 8, 8 of the electorate. Working class, which Celinda is almost giving up on asking that, really only runs about 10 or 12%. Because 58% of the electorate says that they are middle class. They consider themselves to be middle class. It was always the argument I made in campaigns, talk middle class. They consider themselves to be middle class, not some demographer that defines middle classes between this income level. Today, Trump, of the four groups, is only leading on the ballot with one group, and that's the middle class. The group that is actually worst against him is high income, not low income. And obviously, working class that I talked to a reporter yesterday that was wanting to push this idea that a bunch of, of, of working class um, uh, Obama voters turned around and voted for Trump in 2016. And I finally said, look, you're assuming they all voted. 
you know, the, the, the working class voters who voted for Trump in 2016 turned out to vote. Those that voted for Obama in 2008, 2012 did not turn out to vote. Because they were the voters, especially if they were African American, who kind of listened to the Obama speeches in 2016, or the First Lady speeches, probably two of the best surrogates out there on either side of the aisle, listened to their speeches and said, we love you, but you want us to vote for her. And actually, Obama had a dampening effect on the African-American vote in 2016 for Hillary Clinton. Damaging vote, uh, suppressing it. They always talk about suppression that it hit them. So, um, the same thing with these middle class voters. He's only winning them by three points, two points. But they also give him in the high 50s, low 60s on job approval on the economy, job approval on, on um, jobs. They don't on taxes, which goes back to my original point. He needs to talk about what we did on taxes for the middle class and small business to kind of drive that home. So Trump has an advantage when you test Trump versus the Democrats on jobs by 11 points, the economy by 12 points. National security, he ekes out a six-point advantage. But very unusual for a president, the Republican Congress has a 10-point advantage on national security, a stronger advantage versus the Democrats than the president has. Because usually just by being the president, that gives you an advantage on national defense. Uh, I think the real concern, you know, we're, we're kind of in a position of, and all this back and forth going after the process, um, being realistic, taking a, foot, a, a step back. Look, the impeachment process in the House is very simple. It's an indictment. It's an indictment process. No, you don't get free access to the information if you're the target. No, you don't get to talk to all the witnesses. No, you don't get to do any of that. Any of that. It's an indictment. And there is no question in my mind that he's going to get indicted by the House. Because it is not even a legal process. It is a political process. Um, the way McConnell has tried to educate the voters, the, the, the senators, is look, you have several choices. You can either try to disavow the information when we don't know what all the information is, and there's a couple out there that are trying to take bits and pieces and do that. You can go after the process, which seems to be the general approach that's being taken, or you can wait until the trial and hear the information and make a decision at that point and not put yourself out there uh, too much. Um, but he made it very clear, when it goes to the Senate, it's a very, it will be a very definitive process. Um, yes, um, will there be a defense and a prosecution that will have access to all the things Trump is saying he should have now? Absolutely. Um, is it going to be a process that the senators speak on a daily basis? No. A couple of uh, questions. You talked a little about Warren and Biden, but I'd love to get your thought on handicapping that and what, what a, either a Trump-Biden or Trump-Warren or any other option might do to all those states that you said are, uh, are purple or even blue. I know you've worked in the Senate uh, 
candidates from Colorado and Iowa. What does the presidential election, given the choice between Trump and one of those candidates, look? And how would you, what, how are you counseling Senate candidates that you work with on how to position themselves? Well, I mean, the, the uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you. The hard part is that there is a a real tough tightrope they're walking out there, um, because uh, if the president does something that they disagree with. I think a lot of the members struggled with the budget bill that went through, that they just weren't there. They thought it was way too far in terms of spending it, and, and they weren't there. But you find yourself in the position that that Trump base, if you say anything counter to the president, they turn on you immediately. Um, but then if you don't, then the independents, then say, well, why aren't you standing up for what you really believe and doing what you really believe? And it becomes a very tough thing to kind of negotiate through. I think that's particularly tough in Iowa. I think we have all kinds of chances to maybe pick up the Senate seat in New Hampshire, not with Corey, but with uh, one of the other candidates that are in the race. Um, because both of those states have a very large, because of what's happened over the years, a very large base of independent voters that you can swing in your direction. But they're going to be swinging based on what's happening presidentially. Um, and so that makes it tough. I mean, right now in Iowa, the independents have turned on Trump, but they haven't turned on Grassley or on Joni Ernst. And so you're constantly, how do we keep that kind of propped up? without doing something that then the Trump base sits on their hands for it. So it, it, it's going to be a very complicated uh, process to, to navigate. Um, let me talk about incivility for a second. Um, one of the things I have become a very deep believer of, and I'm seeing in the data out there, is that um, cynical voters while often they're portrayed as this is government not doing the right thing, uh, I think cynical voters are the most dangerous voters to our democracy that you can find. Because cynical voters are the most susceptible to being manipulated by demagogues. Whether they be a demagogue as a candidate, uh, a demagoguery of the party, or demagoguery in the media. And one of the things you're seeing out there um, today and it's fairly, it's been increasing, but fairly new, is that people are now taking the three cable networks and they're only listening to the one that they think tell them what they already believe. If, they're, if they either watch Fox or MSNBC or CNN, which used to have watchers that maybe were CNN, but also watched the other two, they're all now exclusively going down those three silos. Um, and so, uh, you know, basically what I say is that watching, um, you watch any of the three networks today, the cable networks, after 8 o'clock at night, it's a waste of your time. It is just pure demagoguery at, at all three of them. Just pure and simple. It has nothing to do with news. If you want reinforcement of your beliefs, then you know where to go. Um, but I do believe if we're ever going to turn around this kind of death spiral I see us in of, of incivility, that it's going to take a group of people at some point that police their own. Republicans policing Republicans, 
Democrats policing Democrats. And I would say it has to have that third component part, which is media policing the media. Um, a, a, and I don't know if it will be organic or the hole just gets so deep we finally panic and they step forward. But um, the one thing I would suggest is those out there that you see trying to, for no other reason but pull us out of this instability, speaking out against their own, um, be supportive, um, because that's really the answer in the future. It is too easy in today's politics to say, I'm doing this because they're doing that. And until we get out of that, at least with a group of people speaking sanely about where we're going, we're not going to pull out of where we are. And it may be good for us one election to win, but in the long term, it's not going to be good. We're going to have some good years and bad years. And we might as well do it the right way, talking about people's problems and real issues, as opposed to talking about what a creep the other side is. All right? Thank Brilliant. you.